Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Celia Sandia Daniels. She has a wide array of experience, including being an entrepreneur, speaker, advocate, and a management consultant. She's an Asian Indian who identifies as gender non-binary and trans femme. So Celia is here to talk about, you know, identity, culture, advocacy, lots of great things. So I'm excited to see where Celia takes the conversation. So thank you so much, Celia. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience more about you? Thank you, Sarah, for that introduction. Um, my name is uh, Celia Sandhya Daniels, as uh, Sarah was mentioning. My pronouns are she and they. I have uh, close to 25 years of management consulting experience with healthcare and life sciences Fortune 100 companies. And I have um, done a lot of things in my life. I'm, you know, I'm a musician, I'm an artist, I am a filmmaker, I love hiking. And um, at one point in my life, I had eight cats in my house. So there's a lot that I have done in the past in my life. And there's such an interesting array of things that I have done. But unfortunately, here's the thing. People, when they look at you, they always say, oh, Celia is trans. And that's all they know. That's all they remember. They just remember that one part of my identity, which is um, trans. And being trans is not my whole thing in life you know it's not my agenda in life it's not my goal in life that's who i am but my goal is to create an inclusive environment in the community in schools in the university and in the workplace and everywhere that i go and one of the things that i always tell people that is my goal is to be a good human being and it's important for us to identify that when we look at another human being and even especially when we're having these conversations, we just kind of tend to lean towards one part of it. And I do love talking about my advocacy, the work and my past life growing up in India. Uh, I'm an immigrant. I am a South Asian. Uh, I was born in Chennai. For those of you audience who are listening from India, it's one of the, so you know what I'm talking about in Chennai. And uh, one of the interesting things that I also remember is I also, I'm a Christian. So <laughs> there's so many intersectional identities that I talk about and it's important for me. Uh, and we will uncover some of those during our conversation today. So I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yes, I'm glad to hear you talk about, you know, kind of how you see your identity, you know, where you focus, where you don't focus, and how that is a part of you and your story. And before we hit record, I mentioned, you know, I hope my cats don't interrupt. And immediately when you said, at one point you had eight cats, I heard my cats do something and now they're making <laughs> noise. So yes, so I'm excited uh, to learn more and, and hear about different, you know, factions of your life. And I'm curious to know, because of your advocacy, because of your consulting, and the fact that like, while yes, you are trans, it's not the only part of you. How do you try to kind of like separate that when you're working in these spaces to say like, yes, I'm trans, but that's not the only reason I'm here. It's very interesting you asked that. Um, before coming out, when I'm, uh, especially in the sales industry, when I'm working with business development, um, and we used to go out for, you know, with my colleagues, we'll just go for a happy hour, have a conversation. And being an Asian, South Asian, the first question they ask is, hey, I love Indian food. And it's a very typical conversation. And it's like, I love Indian food. Uh, so tell me, where do you get Indian food? Do you love Indian food? And I said, no, I like steak. We're like, what? <laughs> and no, my my favorite cuisine is Afghan cuisine, and it's not Indian cuisine at all. I know I eat Indian food every day, but I love the other cuisines. I love tacos. I, I love these small food places in L.A. My wife and I, we go there, and we eat in all the street foods and everything that I like. So sometimes when people see you, probably for breaking the monotony of the conversation, they try to 
bring something in. And I understand that. And I talk to them a little bit about, so what do you do? What do you, what do you, you know, what's your, how does it, you know, how many kids do you have? What do you, what are you interested in? What are your hobbies? Did you hear about the game that's going on? So we try to have some conversations and try to lighten it up. And when I came out as trans um, in my workplace, especially the consultants that I, I've been uh, consulting with, they always have a little bit of a hesitance in talking to me. And I have learned that I, I'm an extrovert and I, I, I'm so open about my life, my everything. I'll just tell them everything. Like I'll tell them that five minutes back I was in the bathroom peeing. You know, it's like that. I just tell them everything. And my wife is exactly the opposite. And she'd be like, how come you're able to share your life with people you don't even know? They're all strangers. And to me, it is important because uh, it's not just about me. There are a lot of aspects of my life when they get to know it it's gives a whole package of Cecilia's. So for me, I found it very interesting when I came out as Celia that people are a little uncomfortable and they don't know what to ask, what to say. And I'll just joke and joke around. I'll say something. I'll say something funny. I'll ask some questions about hiking or about the traffic in LA. We talk about how it rained and how I fixed my roof and what happened. And when they hear those conversations, it's such a simple everyday conversation that you have with somebody and they can relate to it. So when you try to present with some relatable facts, which is day to day, you know, like my daughter grew up here and this is where she went to school. Now she's going here. Uh, she's working in the state of California in Sacramento. My wife works for as a financial analyst. I keep talking a lot about my life, not just about me, and it kind of normalizes the conversation. It makes it more easy for people. And sometimes I sense that, and I, I mean, being in the business development for 25 years, you know your customer in the first 10 minutes or five minutes. You kind of talk to them. You kind of gauge where they're coming from and how can you wrap around your conversation, what is of interest to them, and how do you listen to your customer. So when I started doing that, it helped and just not fixating on only one part of my identity, which is Celia as trans, but when I talk about music, that's a whole world. And uh, I've been uh, a rock musician. I was in a rock band back in college. And when I say this, everyone is so surprised, like, why you're a trans person from India and you play rock music? Like, what kind of rock did you play? I said, I played Beatles, I played Dire Straits, I played Led Zeppelin, I love Stay to Heaven. ACDC, um, a lot of whatever came to mind. I will just play because I'm a, I, I'm a good ear musician. I just play everything. And it's fun when I was talking to uh, some you know, strangers. This is the way I want them to know the aspects of our life. Even being trans is more relatable. Humanizing the conversations is where I like to bring in such intersectional identities that I have which makes them feel like, oh, this is amazing. I, I didn't know that, Celia, you are a musician. And in fact, I've wrote 40 songs. I've composed songs. I have recorded songs as well. It's on YouTube. And I do a lot more recording. I'm a, I love sound engineering more than my passion in consulting. <laughs> I, 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 I'm so much interested in so, in so many different aspects of my life. But it is interesting when you, as you rightly said, when you have this identity of who you are. Um, you know, people don't come up to you and talk about how do you feel to be white? You know, they don't ask you those questions. I want them not to ask those questions. Though it's important in conversations when I normally have when in a panel discussion, when I have to give a speech, when I have to advocate, I do stand up for that community. But it's important to kind of look at it from different facets and bring out those conversations. And that's what I love the most. Yeah, I think it's it's great to hear about people's reactions, you know, kind of being in a rock band, but you're a management consultant, you're trans, <laughs> like everyone doesn't fit into one box. You know, you can mm -hmm. kind of do whatever it is that you're passionate about. 
Now, since you are passionate about sound engineering, I'm curious to know, like, have you ever tried to like go down that path? Are you happy with what you're working on and kind of keeping that as just another thing about Celia? Yeah, I started um, recording my songs. I started writing songs. I started composing the music for it. And I was passionate about it. I got a Final Cut Pro um, for recording and also the video recording and also the uh, Logic Pro for audio. I started with that. I've not gone into Pro Tools because I didn't have the time to go into it. And I have uh, set up my home studio, got all these mics and everything, and I started recording. I harmonize as well. Started. Uh, I play the keyboard little bit so it's easy for me to add in different uh tracks in there so I, I really enjoy that a lot and it's one of those times in life you feel like um maybe midlife crisis <laughs> like, i want to do something something different i've never done before so i i did all that it was real fun and i have the experience and i literally went down the path of going to a studio and recording that's when i found it interesting I was playing with real musicians and they were solid musicians um, and also they recorded my singing and I, I composed a song which I I think there was only one song that I video recorded the most of them are audio I recorded the video because uh, it's a song that I wrote for Transgender Day of Remembrance which is coming on November 20th it's when the trans people have been murdered across the country across the world we remember that and uh, it's important i wrote a song where i brought in the different aspects of the trans violence that's going on people of color um people who are being murdered because of who they are it's important for me to bring up these conversations because i in 2011 i went to one event in west hollywood it was a transgender day of remembrance and that's the first time i'm literally standing in the audience i didn't know anybody in the audience i was standing there um, i didn't have a seat because it was packed i was standing there looking at the images and images of trans people who were murdered there were six trans women in india who were murdered just brought back my memories when i was going through my uh, public shaming in india I had some, I'll talk about it a little bit later. And also it kind of just, I, I was just sobbing, sobbing to, so much that day. I was trying to hide, trying to make sure that people can't see what I'm doing. But I felt like I need to save at least one trans person's life if I can. And in the next course of months, I found a trans person who was really depressed and she was from India and living in LA as a doctor, herbal medicine, in, in the herbal medicine. I started interacting with her, started um, em, em, empowering her, talking to her, and just listening to her. And she told me, Celia, when, meaning after many years, now she's very successful. She's back in Mumbai. She's doing some role in Bollywood. But one thing she said when I met her in 2011, and just a few years later, she said, you were there for me when I really needed somebody because my family disowned me. I didn't have anybody. I lost all my property because I came out as a woman and in the Muslim culture, the property goes to the male of the family. And since I came out as a trans woman, I lost everything. And to me, that touched my heart so much. And I started thinking about if I have made an impression in her life and I can do more. Her name is Maya Jaffa. Uh, you can Google and she's very popular. And I know that she'll be so proud of me talking about her. Um, but these are stories that are so important to me that changed me to really advocate for the community, stand up for the community. And going back to the song that I wrote, it actually reflects all these words in it about the legislature, about people getting murdered. And um, every time I listen to the song, it just brings tears to my eyes. And it, it's so powerful. And I took a month to write a song, that particular song, and put a music to it. And um, the experience that I had recording with students in uh, West Hollywood, in, in the Hollywood industry, music industry was amazing. I had the opportunity to work with them and they were so fascinated with the song. They recorded the video and uh, it's out on YouTube as well. But yeah, I came, I started telling the story, went back to why I did it and I just came back because 
it's very apt uh, since we are approaching the Transgender Day of Remembrance in November. I thought I'll just bring up the that aspect of our of my advocacy. Definitely, and I think you know it it ties a lot of passions together. And to hear you know you helped somebody in a really hard time for them, and now you know they're being successful. That's always helpful to kind of also just remember like why you do what you do. Um, right. Would you be willing to share a little bit more kind of about what it was like in India? You mentioned kind of like some public reckoning and you've talked, mm. you know, and to talk about that along with a little bit of like your journey of coming out as trans, you've mentioned um, having a spouse and just kind of like those various parts mm. of your your journey. Absolutely. So I break down my life into five dimensions. One I call this as um, dreaming, doubting, denial, discovery, and destiny. So these are the three dimensions, five dimensions of my life. The first one is dreaming. When I was four years old, I was, I didn't know, but I told my mom, I want to be a girl. And I felt like I want to be this girl. And I I wanted to be, uh, I, I wore my mom's sari around my head and I started running around. My mom thought it was cute because I, they have one boy, my brother's um, uh, boy, <laughs> so they needed a girl and they were like, okay, maybe we'll dress you up. And uh, when I was willing to run around and I was okay with wearing my cousin's clothes, uh, they were very flowy, long skirts, and I was like running around in the house and I just felt so happy. I remember when I was in my seventh grade, my mom told me, no, you cannot wear those your sister's cousin's clothes anymore because you're a boy. And only that time I remembered my gender was in fluid. I thought I could be a boy and a girl, and I could enjoy being a girl when I wanted to, and uh, I could have the privilege of being, growing up as a boy in India. It's a, such a patriarchal society because it's like men and then women in the second tier of uh, the ecosystem. So when I grew up, I remember coming out to my mom and the um, social constructs that were created by the colonial British government in India had taken away the 4,000-year-old culture, which was very gender-fluid. Um, the spectrum was very, the sexual spectrum and the gender-fluid spectrum was completely binarized, and, and there was a lot more um, binaries introduced in the society, and people who were called hijras, so in a 4,000-year-old culture, they went into hiding because they didn't know what to do. And um, they were called Dasis. They were in the temples and um, they were revered like angels. When people had, uh, when they sleep with them, they are supposed to have children. And they were revered like having, you know, relationship with an angel. And it was accepted culture in India in those days. Now, after the colonialism, it kind of went into a prostitution mode where they said this is going to be you're going to be ostracized in the society, and they all went into that. When I came out, uh, after my mom told me that, you know, I can't do this, I didn't know what to do. So there were three choices I had. One is um, I come out, I tell my mom that I'm trans. They knew, but I had stopped after that, you know, because I didn't, I was doing it in secret, but I didn't tell them that I'm still continuing to be a girl. And I didn't want to tell them because I was feeling ashamed of myself. Growing up in a very patriarchal society, you feel like I'm a man. I have to be a man. And I was pretending to be a man every day. I was trying to think about ideas that would kind of make me feel like I'm a boy and not express any of my femininity as a girl. So I, I just learned to suppress my femininity and I started surviving. In, in that what happened was um, the traumas started layering up, which I didn't know at the time. Because when you suppress your gender, your authentic gender, and you're trying to pretend to live in your birth gender, what happens is the gender incongruence kind of starts acting up, where your mind, your way you're thinking is completely different, and your body is craving to be in that authentic gender. And you don't have an opportunity because you can't. So the three choices that I had at the time was to come out to my parents and my parents kicked me out and I joined the Hijra community. Second one is I come out to my parents, they don't accept me, and I just kill myself because I don't have an option. The third is 
I come out to my parents and um, or I don't come out to my parents. The third option is I don't want to come out to my parents. I just suck it up and uh, live with it. I didn't want to go down the second and the third option, um, the second option, because it was very hard for me to, um, you know, think about anything that would end my life. And here I was, um, a, a child, just thinking about all these big decisions in my life when I was in my elementary school. <laughs> it was, it was really hard. So I can imagine. Uh, I'm going to give a trigger warning for some of you who are listening to this conversation because uh, if you have gone through similar experiences, I just want you to move to remove yourself from this conversation for a few seconds and then join because I know it it is going to be triggering for some of you. When I was in my fourth grade, my uncle molested me. It was really hard for me to even tell my mom because it was my mom's brother. I don't know how to bring it up. I, I was so shattered in the morning and he got up and he sat on the breakfast table like nothing happened and he walked away. And I was shattered and I didn't know how to even talk about it. And there I was just holding up this, this massive abuse in me. Two years later, my cousin brother did the same thing. And I really thought maybe because I'm, I look like a girl or maybe they think I'm a girl that they're doing this to me. And it's my fault. It's not their fault. Because they are men, that's what they do. Maybe I'm a girl and they're doing this to me. I, I, I personalized it. I personalized the trauma. I just thought it's my fault and it's not their fault. I, I felt like I was a victim here and not them. They are, they are not. They, they are just doing what they are men do. I couldn't tell my mom. I carried this trauma for many years and I just made up my mind that, okay, they didn't rape me, so I'm okay. Because they just molested me, that's okay. It's not rape. And growing up in a culture where there's so much of celebration around the rape culture in India, where they portray that in the media, Indian women go through this a lot. And I know if you're an Indian woman listening to this, you can relate to what I'm talking about. The important thing is it was such an... It was so difficult for me to talk about it, and I just... I didn't want to talk about it. I moved on. I started focusing on my studies. I started focusing on music. I started doing that. And my gender incongruence started building up slowly. Where it came to a point where I felt like I cannot live like a boy. I want to come out as a girl. I need to go out. In my ninth grade, I wore a long skirt. I wore a pink top, covered my head with a scarf like a hijab. And I walked outside for the very first time in India in my ninth grade as Celia. I didn't have a name for my femininity, but I just, at the time, I didn't have a name. And here I was just walking in the streets and um, uh, it was dusk, very, there was barely some light in the streets and I was walking in the darkness through a construction site and the security guard of the construction site, he saw me and he called me and said, hey, what are you doing here? Because women don't normally walk through the construction sites in the night. It's not safe for them to walk around and I was walking there. He saw me and he called me closely and looked at me in the light and he started laughing here and like, hey, you're a hijra boy. <laughs> he started using all kinds of derogatory Indian language that demeans a trans person and he started doing all that and I'm so upset. I didn't know what to do. I was trying to avoid any kind of feeling sad or showing it on my face and I was so angry with them. At the same time, I didn't want to show my anger because I knew they would tie me up. Um, and then when you're a child, what happens is um, they, they can't do anything to you because you're you're a child. I was 11 years old, probably. And um, But if you're an adult, they would kill you. And nobody would care because you're trans. So the biggest thing that concerned me was they were asking for my parents' name and where do you live. So they wanted to probably even tie me up and take me to my parents and say, look at your son, look at the disgrace he's bringing to our community. I lived in a very good community, my parents we lived. So being a trans in that community was such a socio-economical letdown. And I feel so, I feel so scared and I didn't know what to do. So I spoke in another language they didn't understand. Thanks to all the language in India, there are more than 3,000 dialects. I spoke another language, they got confused, and I just pulled my skirt up and I started running. 
they chased me for a little bit but they couldn't keep up with me because i was good in running came back home and i started oh i want to kill myself the next couple of weeks i felt like i really want to be this person but i don't know how to be this person if my parents find out it's such a disgrace to them and i can't live like this i want to i need to try to so i got into a lot of self harm and self harm slowly started manifesting into suicidal tendencies and there was a time when i oxygen was running out of my breath and i was almost ready to die and i felt felt so scared i was afraid to die and i was also afraid to live and um i just ran to the beach i sat down and started crying a lot because i didn't want anyone to see me crying um so i my therapy was in the beach that's how my childhood days were it was it was really hard to navigate through those traumas and gender incongruence and fast forward i i got into a mode of denial um of course i had this doubt whether i'm really trans or not then i went into this point of thinking that you know what i'm not trans because tra- if i am trans i probably should like men but i don't like men i like women so maybe i'm not trans i was confusing sexual identity sexual uh, orientation and gender identity and that put me at a point where i went into a denial mode saying i'm not trans i don't think i'm trans maybe i just have this fetish of wearing a woman's clothes i'll just wear it once in a while um so when no one was around i just slip in a skirt and felt like oh my god this is how i belong in this and this is who i am and i and then maybe after an hour i had to remove the skirt because someone was coming um especially living in a very crowded society back in college i i couldn't express myself there were times when my parents were looking for i mean i did my masters in computer science i worked on lots of projects um i was very brilliant in my studies i did very well at work and here i was um my parents had proposed to uh, ask me if i would be interested in meeting this girl and i met her and i was attracted to her um i it was arranged marriage it's like e harmony <laughs> it's like someone telling why don't you Why don't you meet Kevin? You know, he's a good guy. Just, just go out with him and see how it works out. So that's how it is. You know, my parents told me check her out, and so we liked each other a lot. And I didn't know how to bring up my gender identity issue to her because I, I didn't want to. And I felt like if I marry a woman, a cisgender woman, my transness would go away. So I was in this denial mode. I didn't want to be trans. Trust me, I didn't want to be trans. I wanted to start a life. I wanted to live my life, enjoy. Uh, and my company was sending me to US. I was working at Dun and Bradstreet. Such a lot of work, and I was so Im- I was as feeling that I am a part of um, the business world, and I wanted to be there. And I wanted to move up in my career. So I came to this country in '97. I was working with Dun and Bradstreet, and I worked with a lot of organizations, and I did very well business-wise. But deep inside, I was struggling quite a bit. Um, so that's where I didn't know how to tell my wife. And my wife came to came with me to US, and we lived in a small apartment. And here I was, not knowing what to tell her. Um, three years later, I had we had our first baby. I mean, our only baby, actually, not first baby. our only daughter and i was so happy that i felt like oh my god i thought i was trans and i cannot have children i can actually have children you know such a stupid thought but i i don't know i just had that in my mind um, because i was even worried about having intimacy with my wife and here i was uh, we had this beautiful girl baby and i was so happy and um four years after our marriage i told my wife sweetheart i'm trans and i was 11:30 in the night i didn't know my wife told me uh, you're not trans you don't you're not a trans person you don't even you're not even gay you're not even trans wait what do you want to think about it i told her sweetheart i i've always been this way and i didn't know the words at the time i didn't know the words because there were no words those days it was crossdresser or transsexual transgender seemed more like a medical transition term at the mm-hmm. time and i didn't know how to use that but i said i think i'm trans and she was like no you're not 
So I spoke to a therapist and he, uh, actually a counselor, Christian counselor. There's no therapist at the time. And he told me, you're a feminine gay. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not feminine gay. I'm not interested in men. So, and that's when I, I it was very interesting. I, I went to this mode of discovering myself as to, I want to have a normal life like any other cisgender family, but why is my life like this? I'm such a successful businessman, I was able to do a lot of things, but I used to go back to my room after my presentation in the hotels. I traveled quite a bit in my business world, and I would slip on a skirt and a maxi dress and would actually feel like I was putting my head under water all the time. And when I put the dress, when I wore, when I was, when I became Celia, my it was actually like breathing under uh, above the water, thinking, ah, feels so good. And that's how it is, gender incongruence. And I, I didn't like it, but I was like, okay, I have to deal with this. And I didn't even feel like using the term that I am trans. It was so hard for me to say that. Um, I did explore, started reading articles and um, I want to just pause there because there's so many questions that would have popped in your head when I went from my childhood to my married life. <laughs> but I just want to pause and see um, and even let the audience take a deep breath in terms of all the information that I was sharing right now. Um, but it is a lot to process and I was in my fourth stage in life where it was the way it started was dreaming, doubting, denial discovery so i want to pause at discovery yeah i mean it's it's definitely a lot um through the dreaming to doubting and denial and to kind of hear everything you went through as a young child um and knowing your identity but then not sharing it to getting to that moment of i do need to share and i i, I need to be above water as as you were just saying um, so I'd like to just kind of give you the space to continue on to share post, you know, uh, sure. in, in the discovery now. And I don't remember the term you used for the phase after discovery. Uh, it's destiny. Destiny. Yeah. Yes. I was like, it started with a D. They were all D words. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah to, to bring us to, um, discovery and destiny to, you know, now the, the positivity that is there. Absolutely. So the interesting um, fact for some of you probably don't know, I was using the word gender incongruence. So gender incongruence means you're born in one gender and you identify in another gender and your brain is telling you something. And um, a lot of trans folks go through this. They used to call it gender dysphoria. Now they use the word gender incongruence. And it, it's in line with the DSM manual five. There are lots of things that I can talk about in gender incongruence. But in my business world, I was working with healthcare and life sciences companies. I was a client partner. My largest PL was like 250 million. I was having a team of around 800 people across the world. I was really successful. I got awards from my clients saying that you know I was the best um, supplier of the year, especially working in this consulting firm. So I, Worked in clinical trials, IQVM, I was um, in Capgemini, I was um, managing the R&D for North America. At the time, there was a lot I was doing in the business world, but deep inside I was struggling. I was still presenting as Daniel. I had not come out. I'd come out in the community a little bit. I'd come out to my wife, but at work, I thought if I come out at work, it's going to be a professional suicide. It's not going to go well. So in the discovery stage, I was trying to understand why people like me react differently. What is the reason? And I started reading, it's not Google articles I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about real research articles from Stanford, from John Hopkins, from some of the authors in Sweden and other parts of the world. I started reading about gender incongruence and to me, it, it hit like a ton of bricks that this is a condition that people go through. It's not a lifestyle choice. People don't wake up and say, you know what, I'm going to try to be a trans person. No one does that. 
it's not a lifestyle choice. This is not uh, something that you pick and choose. I don't want to be trans. I'm saying, you know, right? I'm saying that I don't want to be trans, but when you know this is what you are, this is who you are, you then try to manage your life based on that. When you feel, when you know, when you think that you have autism, when you think that you have bipolar and you go through the series of tests and it shows up, you try to manage your life. When you have depression, anxiety, you try to manage your life. If it doesn't go away, you manage that. That is how gender incongruence is too. You learn to manage that by social transition, by legal transition, medical transition, and also accepting the fact that you have, you are different and you have gender incongruence. And that led me to think about the medical side of what is going on and how do I really educate myself? And I started reading so many articles that I felt that I really wanted to do something about it. And that's when I already shared the story of uh, coming out uh, in, in 2011 with my friend and why I wrote that song. And those are the times when I went to different organizations in LA and I was trying to be a part of the work that was going on within the trans organizations. And I always felt different. I went back to India, started working with my dear friend, Kalki Subramaniam. She's going to come to LA in, the, in November. And I I met her back in, in Pondicherry back uh, in 2015. I spent time with her and understood what she was doing in India. I spent time listening to people around the globe as to being an advocate, what were they doing? And I started thinking about spaces where I can add value. So the first thing I thought about was economic empowerment, where it's about work. So how can I get work for trans people? Like if, I mean, I at, at this time, remember, I've still not come out at work. But I started doing all this in the back of my, when I had time, I used to volunteer with organizations trying to help build that space. And I started doing that. Uh, but one other thing that I did was also educating organizations to be inclusive of the trans community. And that's the part where I did not have my story because I was still presenting myself as Daniel in the companies. And my gender incongruence went through the roof. Uh, at the time, I was very successful and uh, in the West Coast life sciences industry. And here I was thinking, okay, I'm going to come out as Celia and let's see how the world takes it and I'm pretty sure they're going to hire me back because they should be lucky to have a trans person who is also an entrepreneur, I mean trans person who is um, an expert in life sciences industry, in healthcare industry. So I came out and started, um, I felt like being in a senior position in the company, the companies that I was working with, the consulting firms, talked about diversity, they talk, talked about being inclusive, but they were really not inclusive. Especially if you're in a senior level. If you're in a junior level, no problem. You know, you're, you're not impacting anybody. We are not worried about you. You're just sitting in your own desk and you're working. But Celia, you have a lot of customers. You have a Rolodex of 50 customers in the West Coast and you coming out will lose all this business. We need a man, not a woman like you. They just, it was always on my face. I could sense that. And even women, cisgender women were not treated well when we had sales calls, when we had proposals, when we did our business development meetings with the clients, when we did a whole dog and pony show, selling all our services. And when we get back home, these guys would come up to me and said, hey, you know, that girl came, she had a, such a good rack. I was like, whoa, seriously? <laughs> She's our colleague, and she did such amazing job just presenting our, you know, our slides and the idea. And here, this is how you're talking about them. And I felt very shameful because deep inside, I felt like I'm a woman too. I'm getting hurt. And here, I was um, not allowed to come out in these companies because it didn't feel that great. So I quit. I quit, and I started looking for a job. For almost a year, I was looking for a job as Celia, and I did not. Get any opportunities because no one wanted to hire a woman in business development roles. Why would they even hire a trans woman? And yeah, of course, a woman of color? No way. And here I was, not just a woman, but a woman of color and trans. 
which is like a double whammy to everything that I came out to and I didn't know what to do. That's when I really saw the true colors of the companies that claimed to be inclusive, that were pink washing. It kind of hit me like a ton of bricks and I felt like this is not inclusivity. You know, this is a lot, this is not right. This is, this is not the right way to run companies. You, you treat me as a professional, not treat me based on my gender identity. And I, I, I truly felt in the shoes of my colleagues who were women, cisgender women, I truly felt when I was walking into the offices wearing my skirt and in my shoes, I felt like, oh my God, this is hard. And this is what they did. This is what women are struggling with every day in the business world, especially with business development. And I was like, I, I'm going to do everything in my power to change this damn thing. This is not right. I started speaking up. I started speaking up. I even told HRC, your corporate equality index isn't right. They were like, whoa, <laughs> nobody tells us that, but we listen to you. And they gave me an award. 2019, I got a you know, community to the service award. I, I got lots of awards and even LinkedIn, the top leaders in biopharma industry, uh, the top 100 DEI women in, 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 the, in the world. There are lots of uh, accolades and the, the wonderful things that I was getting. But in my mind, I was thinking, what do I want to do the rest of my life? If I have to continue down this path, whether I'm going to be just existing in companies, just trying to be trans and trying to blend in the companies are going to change. And that's when I thought, this is my destiny. This is what I'm meant to be. This is my life. This is what I want to do. And it's not an easy road. I changed my resume to Daniel and I applied for companies one year without a job. I was struggling for a job for one year, right? I didn't get a job anywhere. Once I changed my resume, took off all the pronouns and took every aspect of what I mentioned as trans, put the resume back. I probably had three interviews in one month. Now, here, this is how the world works. Of course, I didn't join those companies. I didn't even attend the interviews. But what hit me so hard is there is a problem and it's the elephant in the room and we need to address that. So I started thinking about what do I need to do? How do I need to really come out? And um, when I was really struggling, trying to see if companies are inclusive, what is a corporate equality index? My wife told me, sweetheart, why are you begging these people for a job? Start your own company. You're so good in what you do. And I was like, oh, it dawned me. Darn it, I should have done that before. So I started my company. And started consulting with all the clients of mine who were not so inclusive and they saw the difference that I brought to the workplace. Uh, it's more than five years now. It's been a great journey. I came out to my daughter when she was 12 years old. Uh, she's 24 now. She's working for the state of California in the Public Utilities Commission. And I'm so happy to see that I raised a daughter who is not only an advocate for me, but a big advocate for the environment as well. And she studied based on what changes she can bring in into the public utilities in the energy department. So she was very focused and she got into the, <laughs> into the first step is going into the public utilities commission. And my wife was not accepting for a very long time. So it took 17 years for my wife to accept me. It took a while. Um, we are still married. We, we, we live together and I love my wife dearly. She loves me dearly. We just celebrated our 26th wedding anniversary uh, this year and looking forward to the 27th next year. And I, I believe that it's important for us to be consistent, insistent and making these changes in places where we cannot make a change. And that's when I felt like I'm called to do this. It's not that I'm called to be a trans, but I'm called to be a change maker, to make a change in the places where they don't accept us, they don't like us, they hate us. So I started going to the churches too, started talking about being trans and Christian, started talking about being trans and being an Asian, I started talking about being trans and being a musician, um, being 
trans in sales, women in sales, trans in business development, trans in IT. I thought of I started talking about gender um, disparities in the technology. And uh, recently, when I did a test, I found that I was neurodivergent as well. That I'm neurodivergent as not I was. <laughs> I am neurodivergent. And I started uh, speaking up for people like me with disabilities. I check all the boxes in, in, in any workplace except the veterans. I check the gender non-binary. I check the Asian Indian. I check the neurodivergent. Yes, I have disability. And I have cardiac issues and lots of other things that I accumulated from my heritage, from my Indian heritage, <laughs> from my parents, I guess. But I... I started thinking about life differently and I felt like this is what we need to do and uh, that's where I am. That's my destiny and um, I wish I could have come out to my parents. My parents passed away. They never knew that I am who I am today. But I had the opportunity to come out to my brother and uh, he accepted me lovingly and uh, his, my sister-in-law accepted me. My niece and nephew, they all text me whenever they hear something about LGBTQ. My daughter texts me, um, and I'm slowly coming out to somebody in, in my life, in my workplace, in my career, in the community. And so it's always a coming out. But here's the important thing. If, if you're listening to this conversation, it's not about me. It's about people like me. And it's also about you, because we need allies like you. Celia cannot come out on her own, uh, back on her own. And there are, we need allies like you, you know, allies like you, Sarah where you're recording this conversation because you want these voices to be heard. And that's why this conversation is so important. And it's such a paramount thing in our country today, making these changes and providing the spaces to people being marginalized and unrecognized and underrepresented um, in areas where they need to be. And so I want to thank you if you're an ally, if you're a parent, you're a friend of a trans person, gender diverse person. I want to commend you for being there for us, for your friends, for your children, for your spouse. That's vital thing that we need to do. Yes, thank you. And I want to kind of go back to one of the first things you said after I last spoke, which was about gender in incongruence and kind of just explaining mm -hmm. that new terminology. I like immediately understood what you were talking about, but also like didn't realize that, you know, it's a replacement for what used to be gender dysphoria, which was also mm -hmm. a term that I was aware of. So even just kind of like little nuggets and moments like that, I think are so important along with, you know, you, know, you taking us on mm -hmm. your journey where you are now, that is your destiny. Um, I'd love to continue talking and hear more things. Um, but I do so, but we are, you know, can't be talking forever. So I do want to ask, is there anything else before I start to wrap up that you would like to share with the audience? I think one of the important things that I always leave my audience with is called allies. Remember the word allies, A-L-L-I-E-S. Acknowledge your privilege, that is A. Listen to the community. Learn to unlearn. Instigate tough conversations and decisions. Educate yourself and educate others. And S is be supportive by being involved. And that's the acronym that I want to leave you with so that you can remember this. And it's so easy, so easy to remember, talk about it, and, um, you know, hashtag it. But this is important. And I came up with this acronym, and I felt like it covers a lot of aspects that we talk about allyship today. And it's much needed much needed in our world today. Living in Southern California, I can, I'm going to leave you with an amazing picture in mind. Just imagine you're all standing in a beach, on a setting, you're all holding each other's hands and we are from different intersectional identities. Some of us are black, Latino, brown, white, gay, lesbian, veterans, people with disabilities, we are all holding our hands and standing in the beach and suddenly the wave comes and drags one person down and we're trying to pull that person up. That is our lifeship. 
we want to make sure they don't get washed away from the waves and we are trying to help them stand and we are all holding each other's hand and that's how it's going to be when we fall into situations where like George Floyd situation happened for black community we were giving more help there we needed that help we were providing that support learning educating ourselves and supporting our black friends same thing now with the anti trans bills that are there today more than 500 anti trans bills the trans community the trans and gender diverse community especially part of the lgbtq community needs a lot of your help your support in terms of listening being there and standing up and being our voice in spaces where we cannot be when the, they're making decisions in schools and they're making decisions in, in the doctor's office saying that this person is trans i'm not going to treat them you know, stand up and say that's not right they're a human being unfortunately we have politicized everything we need to humanize things so be there for a community be an amazing ally and uh, stand up for us and that's what i want to leave you with in this conversation in this podcast Yes, I think between the acronym and and those words right there, it is a, a great place to end and, and so important for people to hear. As I mentioned before we started recording, I do ask all of my guests a random question at the end. So my question for you is, do you remember your dreams? Do I remember my dreams? Yeah, your dreams, like when you're sleeping and then you wake up, do you... Oh, yeah. Was it a black void or you remember what was going on? I remember my dream clearly and sometimes I've also continued my dream after going to the bathroom and going back and I even try to bring it back and it just continues to. It's interesting. I love the movie Inception because of that. I'm one of the big fans of Inception because I can relate to it. <laughs> All right, that brings this episode to a close. So if you would like to connect with Celia, I will be leaving her website in the description along with various social media links. So if you want to connect with them, feel free to go check out all of those links. And of course, if you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. It brings you to all of our social media. We are on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. It brings you to all of our past episodes, past guest resources, guest social media, all of those good things. So feel free to go check that out. And if you would like to be a guest on the podcast and share your story, my email is in the description. That's the best way to connect with me. And of course, if you would like to support the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that as well. So thank you so much, Celia, for spending time with me today. And to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Yeah, thank you so much uh, Sarah for inviting me. I had a great time and I hope our listeners have a wonderful time too. Thank you and uh bye-bye.